I challenged you last week to practice affirmation as Paul did to the Corinthians in the gospel and thank God for three particular individuals and express to God what you're thankful about them, but then let them know what you thank God about for them. And so I told you I would ask if you did that uh, last week. We spent a couple minutes after the service uh, having a word of prayer for a specific person um, that God um, uh, put on your mind who uh, probably needed some encouragement here. And so I'm going to ask this morning, uh, first of all, how many of you received encouragement from someone this week? All right, all the hands that are down, they're the people who need to receive more encouragement, all right? Uh, So uh, that's great, all right? So that probably means there are more people this week, I trust, by God's grace, that received encouragement than a normal week. Um, uh, Keep it up. And then uh, those who didn't receive encouragement, uh, we need to continue reaching out and and, uh, sharing the things that we're thankful to God about those people. Um, Now... We just finished 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, which is about a people who are called in the fellowship. This morning, we're going to look at verses 10 through 17 that Tim just read, a people who are called to fellowship. To fellowship. And then next week, we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. And uh, I'd like to have the Lord's Supper after that uh, message here as we look at the gospel and Jesus Christ in specific. The thing that the world calls foolishness is in the stumbling block and his, and his craziness to a, a mind apart from Christ. Now that builds us up and calls us into this fellowship. What is it about little boys and anthills? Uh, when they see one, they just feel this inner compulsion. They have to just stomp at that anthill. And then what happens when you stomp at that anthill? All the ants just come out and they scatter everywhere, right? In all different directions. The thing that they were unified in and building has been, has been destroyed and now they don't know what's going on. And these little ants are, 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 are now trying to find their purpose in life again here. Everything they worked toward is now falling apart. Now imagine a church like that. A church that has been stomped upon. A church that has been racked by divisions. And there were, there were uh, people who were promoting certain leaders against other leaders. Uh, and loyal bands of followers that looked at the other leaders' uh, followers as people who were, uh, uh, didn't have it all quite together. Uh, one of the people in this church is having an affair of his, with his stepmother. Instead of dis- discipling and disciplining this person... So there are people in the church who are actually boasting of his freedom in Christ that allows them to behave in such a way. There are believers who are suing each other in secular courts. Some who are visiting temple prostitutes. And as a backlash against some of this immorality that is here in Corinth, there is another faction that is pr- promoting uh, sexual abstinence in marriage for all believers as the Christian ideal. Then there's debates about how clear the lines need to be and, and, and what is allowable with, with a Christian's break from their, from their uh, pagan past. There are dis- under, uh, disagreements and misunderstandings about men and women's role in the church that's adding to the confusion. And as if, as if this wasn't enough, there is alleged prophecies and speaking in tongues and and using your gifts just for your own singular benefit rather than the building up of the whole church together in a constructive fashion. And then there is a significant number of immature Christians who don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ and say it's not that important for our faith. 
I mean, all these things together, does that sound like anything you've ever heard of before and today? Well, probably no church today may face all of these different things all at once, as Paul is trying to iron out the issues here in this church. But all these issues really are not new things. And this is the first century church in Corinth. And I remember my dad telling me one time that probably um, the church at Corinth is probably, in many ways, the normal church. There are issues that are underlying the surface and maybe in some ways because we don't live in community as tightly as they did there, we're just not aware of all the things that are going on. So verses 5 through 9, as we looked last week, Paul describes that they have been called into fellowship. In fact, he closes with this idea here. God is faithful by whom you are called to the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now on the basis of that, he's going to say, because you have been called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One. Now, you are then out of that called to fellowship with one another, since you all are called into fellowship with Him. So called into fellowship, now called to fellowship. Called to fellowship. Verse 10 uh, begins the actual body of this letter of 1 Corinthians. It really falls, 1 Corinthians falls into two main parts. There's first of all Paul's response to information that he received from some people about the Corinthians. Concerned people. Not gossipers, but people are really worried, concerned about their church. He's received this by word of mouth. And that's the first section of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 10, where we begin today, all the way through chapter 6, verse 20. And his reply to, and the second part is his reply to a letter that the Corinthians has sent him with some questions. That's chapter 7, verse 1, all the way to chapter 16, verse 4. So in the first half, 110 to 620, Paul refers to four problems he has heard about that are plaguing the church. First of all, factions, divisiveness, dissensions. In chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 21, he spends a lot of material on that in unity. Then a situation of immorality uh, uh, in chapter 5, 1 through 13. Lawsuits in chapter 6, 1 through, 1 through 11. And then more general sexual immorality in chapter 6, 12 through 20. The members of Chloe's household, who perhaps uh, hosted a church in her home, uh, 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 have brought him news first of these problems. We'll see that in verse 11. And, uh, and there's also been news from people such as Stephanas, Fortunatus, Achaicus in chapter 16, verse 17. But it all boils down to what is Paul now? How is he going to lay a foundation in order to attack these problems and to build up the body of Jesus Christ? And so he spends really four chapters on what is the most important thing. About keeping the main thing the main thing. Because he understands, if he, if he has a clear understanding of that, and people are living and walking in that, then it will take care of disunity, it will take care of the sin problems. Uh, that is where he must build from. Because then he will build, when he builds from the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then it is that those other problems, those other sin choices now may be dealt with and reach the heart. First of all, this morning, I'd like us to look at verse 10. He says, I beseech you, or I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. First of all, this morning, I'd like you to see the clear command of Christ-centered unity. 
The clear command of Christ-centered unity. He says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's appeal for unity, really, in this verse here, involves several key expressions. He exhorts the church, first of all, in the name or the, or the idea of the power, the authority of Jesus, King Jesus, that all of them must agree, literally meaning that they should all say the same thing. They must then abolish divisions. And that word there was a, a word used in the political parties, yes, of their day. Uh, a political term for rival parties or factions. And then they should become perfectly united. It's a verb which means restored to unity in two ways, in mind and thought. Uh, ideas that include the ideas, uh, 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 terms that include the ideas of counsel and choice, responsibility, and also an understanding of a body of truth is to be produced here in unity. But notice how Paul appeals to them, first of all, in verse 10 he says, I beseech you, brethren, brethren, don't pass over that word. That's a family word. That's, that, that is Paul saying, you are my brothers. We have been adopted as sons into God's family. You're my brothers. We're family. We are more family than, 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 than those who are biological family, Paul said. And he leads into the subject with a, with a tender appeal, and he appeals on the basis of family. Brothers, it's a word that he's going to use to these people who are in so many ways corrupt. He uses 39 times throughout this letter. By far and away, the most frequent use in any of his letters. The next are Romans and 1 Thessalonians, each with 19. 39 times he calls them brothers. And then he says, on the basis of the, the truth, that they are under the, he is under the authority of the king. He is bringing the message. King Jesus, he says this, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is imploring them in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm bringing this to you in representative representation of him. It's his full title here. His very strong, solemn appeal. This is the one name that stands above all other different party and faction names. So this is under the authority of the king, I appeal to you for unity. And this is not, I wish you guys would all just get along. Can't we all just get along? But his appeal is directly from the throne room of the Redeemer King. And it is command to cease and desist quarreling in factions and avoiding one another. Now why can he say this? Because this is one of the last words of Jesus here to his disciples before he was crucified the next day. This is the prayer of Jesus to his father. Some of his last words recording in John 17, ask God's will to be done in this very matter of unity. He says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. In other words, the thing that makes God distinct is that he has three distinct persons, but one God. And that is his glory. And, and Jesus says, I want to share that truth, that glory about the triune God, about me and Father and Spirit with my people. And he says, I and them and you and me that they may be perfect in one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is an appeal under the authority of the king, what Jesus had prayed for. But understand also, under this truth here of the clear commands of, 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 of Christ-centered unity, that this is in step with the gospel. 
It's in step with the gospel. Look what he says in verse 10. But that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Which means you have to ask yourself, well, what is the sameness he's talking about? What is this, the, this thinking that they're to be united in? What are these, what are these um, uh, opinions? Uh, uh, what, 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 is, what is the thrust of, of, of what they are to be connected in? And when he says, I want you to agree, he's saying there's to be no divisions, there's to be no factions, no dissensions, because he says you are complete in the mind of Christ. And Paul's uh, uh, appeal to them is for them to pursue that completeness in the mind of Jesus Christ. Paul looks for them to be perfectly united. The end of verse 10 where it says, but that you be perfectly joined together, completely joined together, is a word that's used in Matthew 4.21 of disciples who are mending broken nets, sewing something together, fixing something that was broken. Uh, it's, 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 it's a word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 3.10 of supplying what is lacking in the faith of the Thessalonians or things that need to be shored up, strengthened. You see, the condition of this church was far from what it should have been. And there was action of restoring that was demanded. And Paul looks to them to, and tells them to come to be perfectly united in mind and thought. Have you ever, unra- ever had a piece of rope and you unraveled it down to the last thread? And you have all these different threads that made up this rope. And together and separately, they're no good, Right? But those threads all started as threads one time, didn't they? And then a rope company, a machine, probably Logan can explain this better to us um, with the rope company, there, it, it has, has taken those individual threads and has bound them stronger and braided them together. And, and uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, a twofold cord is better than a single string and a threefold cord is better than a double. And now altogether they are stronger. They are stronger. You see, what God is saying here is your rope is unraveling. You're acting like individual pieces here and you need to be bound together, united in Jesus Christ. Well, what about Jesus Christ, you might wonder? Well, that's what he's going to spend four chapters on. He's going to send her on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that will be what propels forward unity. That is to be what guides our words and our deeds in the church. And Paul deals with the first of these four problems here. This problem of unity, this first problem here, at the greatest length. Now why would he do that? Why would he spill all that ink on four chapters on unity? Why would he spend uh, 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 four chapters unpacking what brings believers together? And the answer to that is this. Corinthian divisiveness and our divisiveness today is to varying degrees all related to an incomplete belief in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.10-17 says the, what the essential problem was rival factions and Paul's solution is appeal to unity, but it's all because of Jesus Christ. So, so next week and all through chapter 4, verse 21, it's going to unpack why that unity is so crucial and how it can become possible. I'll kind of break that down for you just as a preview here. But this section here really gives us four parts here for achieving unity. If we are going to be a church that goes forward in the power and name of Jesus Christ, united together in this truth, then we need to understand uh, a focus on the cross of Jesus Christ and what it means. That's chapter 1, verse 18 next week. 
through chapter 20, um, through, through eventually chapter 2 and verse 5. Then we need to understand what true spiritual wisdom is that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 2, verse 6 through 16. Then we need to, in, in, in chapter 3, understand the fundamental equality of all believers. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 21, how we are to treat Christian leaders appropriately. Those are the things that give us a very strong fourfold cord in unity. So he gives them, first of all, a clear command of Christ-centered unity in verse 10. But then I'd like you to notice verses 11 through 13. He says this. Here's his explanation of why he has to say this. For it has been declared, it's been reported, told to me, of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions, there are quarrels, dissensions among you. Now this I say that every one of you says, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, what he's saying here is, is uh, he's saying, um, there's some chatter going on here, and it's people saying, you're on my turf, you're on my territory. Uh, a, a few days ago, when there was actually still snow on the ground here in February, um, Violet and I walked through a logging um, trail in our woods across the, across the road. And uh, there's all kinds of squirrel tracks and deer tracks, and you can see where squirrels have, have uh, tried to dig up nuts, or they have nibbled on, on some of the pine cones, and, and their tracks were everywhere, and uh, I was showing her these things, and we're walking, we got to the, kind of this clearing where these, where these spruce trees were, and it was just packed with squirrel tracks. And then she said, looked at it, and there were, there were a couple squirrels that were kind of um, uh, running along a tree that had fallen down, and then they, then they climbed up a trunk and were chasing each other. Was like, I said, look, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, and there's one. There were a bunch of them all together, and, 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 and they're all uh, 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 doing their own thing, and they're all chattering at each other. Because maybe one of them had gone into his ter- into the other one's territory, or maybe one had 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 had, uh, had done something to his woman, and he was going after her, or or whatever it was, or maybe they saw these two human beings coming into their territory, but they began to chatter, began to chatter, saying, "This is my territory," and that is what was going on in the Corinthian church. There was chatter that was starting to happen, and this chatter was this. Paul's my man. Apollos, he's my guy. Peter or Cephas, he's my guy. And then there were people saying, you guys are all wrong. Jesus is my guy. Now, you might wonder, well, why is he saying that? It sounds good. Well, let me explain a little bit here. Is the problem Paul faced is messengers came from Corinth, from the house of Chloe, to tell him that things were going on. And this young Christian community was, there was lots of noise that was going on. Lots of noise. It's like in the morning when you wake up and you hear all the birds. But this isn't a pleasant bird sound. There's like crows everywhere. <laughs> Obnoxious. Squeaking, whistling, and all that's the same thing. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, I like this guy because this is my vision of Christianity. And you don't belong here because you're with this guy. In other words, they were marking out different styles in terms of different teachers. I'm Paul's man. And Paul's my guy. Paul was the first guy who brought the message to them, right? Jesus is King, Lord, and Savior. But Paul hadn't been the only teacher they had in Corinth. 
Because Acts 18 and 19 tells us that not long after he'd gone, there was a wonderful speaker who was greatly learned in Scripture and able to explain it powerfully had arrived. His name was Apollos. We'll meet him later on in the chapters. And Apollos came from a city in Egypt, the city of Alexandria in Egypt. It was a place where there was a strong Jewish community. And uh, there was a great Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo. Perhaps he had been trained in those ways to, to really be an excellent speaker. And Apollos had been an Ephesus, which is kind of across the bay here at Corinth. And, 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 and he had met some of Paul's colleagues. This is in Acts 18, 24 to 28, if you want to read it sometime. And they helped him to have a fuller understanding of the Christian message here. And then he had gone to Corinth, Acts 18, 27 and 19, verse 1. And he was there when Paul came back to Ephesus. And that's where Paul is while he's writing this letter in Ephesus. And by this stage, it seems that Apollos had returned to Ephesus uh, uh, again. And that doesn't really matter. But anyway, there were people in Corinth who had decided that they preferred Apollos' teaching. I like his style. I like his methods. I like what he emphasizes his content to Paul's. And you'll find that, won't you, in churches and Christians, believers. You'll find people comparing speakers. It's natural, but it should never pass in the factions and rivalry. I'm with Apollos. But that wasn't all. There was another guy. You all know Peter here. And some in Corinth were saying they belonged to Peter. We don't know whether Peter had visited Corinth himself. I tend to think so. He had made a visit there. Whether some other traveling Christians had been to Corinth claiming to teach what Peter himself taught. Peter's teachings. Uh, but they had made enough of an impact for people to say, I'm with Peter. I'm with Peter. And then there was a fourth party. You know who these people were? They were the Jesus people. They had it right. They, they were the real Messiah people. And everyone else was following this leader or that leader, but they were simply following King Jesus. And, and, and this also, by the way, was a, was a power play in the church. I'm with the Messiah. And the way that Paul includes this here um, with these other leaders here tells us that they weren't using it in an edifying, but they were using it in a look down your nose at the other divisions here. Um, it's the idea that they had, they had also, even through Jesus, had absorbed the spirit of partisanship, divisions. And that, that bothers Paul. And notice, in these, with these leaders, he does not, Paul does not say anything uh, about these leaders. Except, that's, they ha- except there were people who were um, making factions. Their teaching was fine, I'm sure. But the fact is, they were, there were different parties, and that was the problem. He doesn't even exempt those who cling to his own name, but he says the whole thing is wrong. He's going to have none of it here because of the spirit of rivalries and dissension. And what he says is about something very powerful here on verse 13 to approach this. He says, he gives a rhetorical question. He says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? The word divided is a word that you would use for, for meat in the market. You would have a cow or a goat or whatever they would eat, and you would cut it up into different cuts, right? You'd have the rib roast, and you would have uh, the, you know, the tenderloins, and you would have uh, all the different parts of, of the animal, and they would be out there for, for sale here. And what Paul is saying is, you guys are chopping up Jesus like the meat market, and it's wrong. 
And he's telling you, you're being ridiculous. You're, you're saying that the Messiah himself is carved up into little pieces that you can take and hold on to. And, and, uh, and, and, and you're saying that these leaders are in a level with Jesus, and they're not. He says, is, is the Messiah split up? Is Paul crucified for you? And what he's saying is, is the Messiah is the one who matters. And from the most senior apostle, Paul himself, to the youngest convert, you are simply members of his body. And friends, so it is true with us today. I don't care if you've been here for 40 years or if you've been here for four days as a member. You have equal share in Jesus. And you are on equal level. There's no seniority necessarily here. Um, uh, you, are, you are in Jesus. And, 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 and Paul's going to have none of this. And what these people are doing is they are focusing on the horror of what makes these people distinct from us. And on the arrogant, beautiful thing that makes us distinct from them. And they are looking down on other believers and arrogance. And this goes on today, doesn't it? People who look at other people through the lens of their own self-worth and begin to measure and to draw lines. I understand labels can be helpful, but they can also be very unhelpful. Uh, I've seen this in, in uh, Calvinists and people who aren't Calvinists. Both tearing down the other's persons and putting them in categories here, not for the understanding of what they believe, but for the tearing down, the caricatures, the things that they say those people believe. I've seen this with Republicans and Democrats. I've seen this with the schooling wars. Homeschooling is the only way to go. Christian school is how you should go. Uh, public school is the only way to go. You see this in personalities that differ from you, don't you? Well, th- those people were just like me and had this you know, way of looking at life. Different ethnicities, certainly. Different IQs. Oh, those people are just, you know, they're, they're living in ivory tower, and we're, we're down here in practical earth here. We know what we're doing, and they, they don't have any sense. Or the other way, those people, would, if only they had an intellect, could understand what's going on, right? Social statuses. Colleges. Christian <laughs> colleges. Opinions on things in the Bible that might have different interpretations. Age. Those old people don't know what they're talking about. They're out of touch. Those young people don't know what they're talking about. They're still living at home. Lifestyles. Economic levels. That's actually a real huge one. There's less of a race war in our country than there is a class war, if we're really honest. Accents. The way you talk. You can automatically put people in different categories, can't you? I do it. You do it. But they drive. He's got a Dodge. <laughs> He's got a Ford. Right, might as well start walking, right? <laughs> the way they dress, the Bible versions they use, their 
parenting style, the music styles they listen to. Listen, built in, all these things happen by default because at the core of it is pride, it's arrogance. It, it, is, it is not something without Jesus that we're going to get better at. It's something that we will only continue to get worse and worse at unless the truth of Jesus confronts us here. Uh, we will drift to pride and segregation and cliques and dissensions and tribes and circles and favorite authors, favorite speakers, classify people by the books they read, what they watch, where they grew up, where they live, their family situation. And God says this in Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates. And he says, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. In other words, when you undermine the unity that is in Jesus, you are an affront to God. And I want to ask us all this question. Not if, not, not, not who, do you, who can you think of as doing this? Have you put yourself outside of the blessing of God so that he will resist you? Doing the things that he hates with disgust, with this arrogance? Do you have weaknesses here that identify with the Corinthian weakness? Where you line up? Who you peg? Right? Are, are, are your temptations theirs? Have you succumbed to these temptations as they did? And what's been the result of that? How have you seen, how have you seen your life kind of uh, uh, turn and twist and, and not turn out well because of not focusing on the cross and the gospel that we have with each other? Um, in what ways have you seen the consequences of this? Where are the paths that, that your heart is, 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 uh, has, has more of a tendency to, to walk down and tread in deep furrows toward this divisiveness? What are the habits and practices that have come out of a, a disunified heart here in your life? Have you ever thought about what is it about me that makes me vulnerable to this particular way that the enemy attacks? What's the root pro- problem of it? The answer is selfishness and it's pride, isn't it? We tend to put what we like and what we enjoy uh, above others. And listen, listen to what Paul says in a couple books later to Philippians. He says, if there be any consolation in Christ, hope in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the spirit, any bowels or compassion and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, empty conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Are there people that you know who you have distanced yourself from? Other believers? whose lives have been affected by this sin in your life. But think about the other side of it. How could Jesus' church and your life be enhanced by withstanding this temptation and responding to humility? By forcing the, the energies of your life to build up Jesus' church by speaking the truth in love. 
And how will this idea here of being united in Jesus force your life spiritually forward? There's great unimaginable potential. Someone said one of the greatest scandals that compromises the church's witness today is unity, disunity. I mentioned John 17, Jesus prayed his disciples would be united. I mentioned before we began this morning, Ephesians 3, Paul expounds the unity of the church across one of the greatest divisions in the Middle East in the ancient times, Jew versus Gentile. And he says out of that can come unity. And actually, he doesn't say can come unity. A unity has been created. That's what we walk out of. We don't create unity. We don't create community. We walk out of what God has already created. Listen, the person in the opposite corner of this room, who you might not know much about if they're a believer, you have the biggest point of contact you can even imagine. Unity. The evangelistic potential of a united church, Ephesians 3, 9, and 10, Paul tells us extends to the most powerful anti-Christian forces in the universe, principalities and powers who watch. And the only way that this unity can have an impact on a non-Christian world is for it to be visible. So much so that God gives the unbelieving world the authority to judge us on this fact. When he says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if what? Now who are the all men? I guess they would include believers, but the idea is the outside world, right? And God says, you have the responsibility, unsaved world, you have the authority to judge my people if they are followers of me by if they have love and sacrifice for one another. That's a pretty profound responsibility and a pretty profound uh, entrustment that God has given to the unbelieving world, right? To put their stamp of validation on God's people. You see, a church should be a people who have no other natural reason necessarily for associating with each other and they come together in love. And thirdly, in closing, the humble wisdom of cross-centered purpose. The humble wisdom of cross-centered purpose. Look in verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanas. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, as the cross of Christ should be made of none effect or no power. What he's saying here is this. <clears throat> Baptism was extremely important. Paul, uh, in, in Romans 6, uses it as a picture of what God does with us and bringing us to die with Christ and live again. I preached four or five sermons this past summer on the importance of baptism. It's crucial. What he's saying is this. It is an effect of the gospel. It's an effect of the gospel. And he says, here's what I'm going to focus on. And Paul delegated the responsibilities of baptizing his converts. He didn't leave his converts unbaptized. He's saying baptism is important here. But here's my focus here. Because baptism represents the cross and resurrection of Jesus, I'm going to focus on the cross and resurrection of Jesus that baptism represents. I'm going to proclaim that message here. And he's saying, this is the core. This is what brings us together. The humble wisdom of a Christ-centered purpose. You see those words earlier on in verse 10, that you all speak the same thing. Has the, has the lingering sense of you speak the same thing for a purpose. 
the words in verse 10 that say that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgments, has an implication that you do this for a purpose. And you know what the purpose is? It's to propel us to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. He is, he is he's saying that at the cross of Jesus Christ, you want to cut out the legs of people or think they are better than others? Here's how you do it. At the cross of Jesus Christ, it's very level. It's so level. It's perfectly equalizing. Listen. In these verses in 10 through 17, Paul is saying that the key for for promoting unity and avoiding divisiveness is focusing on Jesus Christ rather than exalting other things, created things. You know why? Because in so doing, we are driven to the cross. And when we are driven to the cross, we see the equal ground there. We see that we all have deserved the cross. We're driven to the cross, and the cross promotes humility. The cross should never promote arrogance and rivalry. And when we recognize the cross and all it stands for, the atoning substitute sacrifice of God-man for sinners in his place or need of salvation, that was, that was uh, vindicated before the world by his bodily resurrection and, and his exaltation, we have identified right there the cluster of fundamental truths that form the core of the Christian faith for over 2,000 years and what for the years leading up to look forward to. We recognize how the other doctrines might grow out of that, but that is the core. That is the center here. The, the, the external signs of inward truth, such as the, the, the obedience of baptism, uh, uh, the, the gathering together as a church, they all flow out of this, the core, the cross. And we should never resolve to let these less central matters then create barriers that are unnecessary with God's people. Now I understand there are different interpretations of Scripture that would limit my participation on different levels of fellowship with other believers. For example, um, we, we have a Baptistic view of baptism, um, which means that it is believers who are baptized. My Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Jesus have the same core, but we're not going to have uh, 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 Pastor Stephen Trace at Lakeview Presbyterian Church, who is my brother in law come into a series on infant baptism. All right, there's, there, there, there are differences there. So I understand that, that yes, there need to be um, um, things that are thought out here, but that's different than a disunity. That's different than a disunity. You see, the faithful preaching of the cross, Paul says in verse 17, leads people to put their trust not in any human device, not in the cleverness of a well-crafted presentation, but in what God has done in Christ. No more, no less. And Paul says this in verse 17, not with wisdom of words, not with a cleverness of a presentation. That is not where the power rests in. And he says when that is where it rests in, and these skilled teachers, uh, uh, you are putting your, 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 your trust, he, he, he is chastising these Corinthians, we're putting their trust in how it, uh, the methods of communication and how it came across. And Paul says their message is the same. The message is the same. It is Jesus Christ. 
And when you put your, your trust and your awe in, boy, that was a great delivery. You know what you just did to the cross? You said the delivery was more important than the message of the cross. Friends, the preaching and heralding of the word of God when we gather together is our worship. That is our most important part of our worship. Because this is the voice of God and his word here. And that is what we rally around. Friends, repentance and trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross for the unbeliever and the believer to walk life out from, that is to be the thing that is the perpetual ringing in our ears. That is to be absorbed in our minds and then flows out into our hands and our feet. It is the cross of Christ that is the power of God and the salvation. It is the cross of Christ that doesn't just save us in the past, but it is the cross of Christ that brings us together. It is the cross of Christ that sanctifies and changes us. It is the cross of Christ that propels us outward in ministry and serving others. It never needs to be added to. It never needs to have a reduction. It never needs to be polished up. It is simple, it is clear, and it is potent. It's the rock beneath our feet. It's the shape of our ministry. It's the direction of our goals. It's the connecting point for all of our different lives. It is the basis for fellowship. It is the grounds of forgiving. And it is the grounds of loving one another. It's saved. It keeps saving. And it will save. And the focus of Christian proclamation here of Jesus crucified and resurrected must remain clearly centered on this message. Because all of it All of what we say, all the doctrine, all the things that we believe and understand the scripture point back to it, point forward out of it, and friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the narrow gate that we all walk through as individuals. It's the foundation of all we believe, all we think, and all we practice. Now, I don't know about you, but I enjoy Charlie's bonfires. They're epic. In the true sense of the word. (laughs) And we've all seen Charlie's bonfires, I think most of you have, and uh, you have to get back about 30 feet. But what if we had a bonfire at Charlie's, and and, uh, he he lit this bonfire, and then he got on this fireproof suit, and he started pulling out these logs, and he chucked one over here. And then he threw one over here out in the field, and one over here, and one over here, and all scattered throughout. What would happen to that fire? It would lose its power, wouldn't it? It would burn out. It would burn out. And friends, the cross is the blaze of fire that unites the fuel together for the, fow- for the powerful purpose of bringing light to believers and to the world and the heat of God's truth. It is the blaze of fire that unites the fuel together for a powerful purpose of one-mindedness in Christ for the sake of His name and the glory of Christ. Throughout the world. Friends, if the Holy Spirit has, has, has revealed to you a heart of pride and arrogance that has placed divisiveness in your heart, whether you have expressed that or not, then this text tells us we need to repent of that. And I encourage you, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you here of pride and arrogance that has caused a divisiveness, and, and there are people in this room that you have, have, have put in a certain category, and, and, and you, you are hesitant to get to know them and love them. That's pride. That's selfishness. That's wrong. And you need to tell someone. I had, maybe you don't need to tell 
you only need to involve the, the, the people who are involved, but you need to let someone know that the Lord spoke to me, and I had this problem, and I repented of it. So you're held accountable for it. And you need to replace that pride with a cross-centered lens that puts you on the path of humility. Because it is the power of God unto salvation, but it is, as he says in verse 17, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the good news of Jesus, is the cross of Christ that is intended to have full power. It is not intended to be a Christ-centered cross that has no power or none effect. Let's pray.